Thank you very much. I'm very grateful for you coming. I'm sorry about the slight panic with the computer beforehand, but uh, we discovered it was a loose lead. It wasn't anything special. So can we ha perhaps have these lights off? And is it possible to have some at the back? So that that would be good. Is that okay for you? So that you can actually sort of s see the screen. So you know the scenario, or you can imagine the scenario. There you are minding your own business, walking along one day, and suddenly somebody comes up behind you and he-chew. Somebody spreads you with viruses. You become infected, you take in this virus, you become infected, and in a matter of just uh, uh, 12, 24 hours, you're starting to ache. 48 hours, you're in bed, you've got a fever. Why on earth did this happen to you? Who was this inconsiderate person that sneezed on you and gave you this infection? Why was it they weren't so sick that they were in bed? They should have been in bed. And what on earth is this disease you've got? I'm sure it's going to be, I'm sure it's the new H5N1 infection and you're probably going to die and infect all your family and you're going to start an epidemic that's going to wipe out the whole of State College. And of course your fever gets worse and worse and then you finally get over it and you go back to work and you forget all about it. You all know the scenario, it's happened to you time and time again. But those sort of questions that I'm asking are the sort of questions that are important for disease spread. They're important for new infections that come across from one species to another species. And those are the sort of things I'm going to try and just touch on today in what I hope is... Um, uh, for my colleagues from the university, is not a data-heavy talk at all, but a sort of gentle look through things, and I hope to stimulate you to come up with a few questions. Now, of course, historically, we know that diseases have been immensely important. This is a painting by the Dutch artist Thomas, Thomas van der Schur, a really tragic painting, and a painting I, I always makes me laugh, because here's this poor woman dying of bubonic plague, this rather obnoxious child with a monstrous-sized head sitting beside her, crying and, and making a lot of noise that she doesn't want. But the whole point is that diseases have caused historically dramatic changes in the size of the human population. The bubonic plague alone reduced the European population by 25%. And it took Italy more than 400 years to recover. 400 years to recover from that one epidemic that spread through. If you've ever had the great fortune of going to Tuscany, walking amongst those beautiful villages, then you only have to think that it wasn't long after they built all this that the people were effectively wiped out, and they were wiped out by a plague. <laughs> of course, today we think, well, it's not so important. But in fact, that may not be the case. In 1914, 20 million people died from influenza. I lost 11 great uncles on one day in the First World War, and yet more people died from the influenza than actually died from, uh, from, uh, uh, during the First World War. So the flu pandemic had a dramatic effect, and of course, that's why we get so excited and worried about some of these other diseases. Rubella, back in the 60s, caused 30,000 stillbirths in the USA. We know that at least 40 or 50 million people are currently infected with HIV. This is probably easily twice what that level is. We have drug-resistant tuberculosis that's been circulating, and people in many countries are infected with this and don't really know it. And then, of course, malaria, 
which we tend to forget about at times, but we have 300 to 500 million cases of that a year. So the infectious diseases are not really a historical thing. They're still with us. And these are all and most of these are diseases that have been with us for a very long time. And then you add in the fact that it, there are huge numbers of infections. Now this is a statistic that always amazes me. There are more parasitic species than there are any all other species put together. If you were to count the number of species, more than half of those species would be parasitic in one form or another. You add together all the herbivores, all the predators, all that, there are more. And of course, parasites have parasites that live on them, and parasites have parasites that live on them, and as um, Jonathan Swift said, and so it goes on ad infinitum. My earliest memory, very earliest memory, is standing outside the doctor's surgery waiting for my vaccines. We have come up with penicillin, vaccination. My mother, who's now 87, thinks penicillin was the greatest thing that ever happened in her generation. We've eradicated smallpox. We've nearly eradicated polio, and it looks as though we're going to succeed in the next few years. There are still some cases in northern India, and it's very interesting why they're carrying on. And some of the, uh, my colleagues here at Penn State are working on this problem. Typhoid levels are down, diphtheria is down, pneumonia is down to 93% in the US, down 93% bronchitis. It looks as though we had the solution. It looks as though with vaccines and antibiotics, we can squash these diseases. We can really do uh, a fantastic job to control them. So much so that in 1969, Bill Stewart, who was the US Surgeon General, in a report to Congress said, it's time to close the book on infectious diseases. Declare the war against pestilence one. And he urged the government to put all their money into heart disorders and into cancer research. Because this has effectively been done. We can go on and produce vaccines. At that same time, the World Health Organization even turned round and said malaria is effectively eradicated. There's just a little bit of it left, but we'll have it wiped out by 1970, so you don't need to worry about it. So now, how many vaccine licenses do you think there are in the US, and how many diseases do you think that acts against? And I'm going to give you a clue. I went out and counted up how many infectious agents we actually have that infect humans. There's 1,405 that we know about. Of course, 207 of those are viruses, large number of those are bacteria. I was surprised, 300 odd uh, fungi, but there's 1,405. So how many do you think we have vaccines against? Well, probably not even half of those, so you might say 700. Well, you know, you, it's very difficult to get vaccines against helmets, so let's say 200. We should, well, let's say 150. Absolute minimum. That seems reasonable. 40. We've got a quote here for 40. Not too bad, because it's actually 23. We've only got vaccines against 23 diseases. In fact, there's, I think it's 54 vaccines we actually have, but they only act against 23 diseases. And yet we put huge amounts of money into vaccine development. Quite understandably, I can understand why the president has done this. 
But as they really thought about it, that perhaps just vaccines and antibiotics aren't the only approach, perhaps we should have a combination approach, perhaps we need a complete arsenal of approaches to try and control infectious diseases. And how wrong Bill Stewart really was. Since he said that, we've seen a whole series of new emerging diseases, diseases we didn't really know about. Some of them we did, some of them have re-emerged, like diphtheria, E. coli, things like this, re-emerging, but completely new diseases that we've never heard of, such as SARS, Hendra, Nipah virus, Ross, Ross River virus, um, West, well, West Nile virus, I could go on and on and list, and it's occurred throughout the whole globe. This isn't just focused in Western Africa. We have new diseases even occurring in my hometown up in Scotland. So, and when it's taking place there, then we should start worrying about it. <laughs> so where are these diseases coming from? Where, where, where are these new emerging diseases coming from? Well, 61% of these new diseases are coming from wildlife. We call those diseases zoonoses because they're shared between different, diff between humans and animals, so we call them zoonotic infections. When we look at it and the representation of those, the majority of these tend to be viral. Yes, there are a few worms, yes, there are bacteria, but when you look at the representation, the viruses are overrepresented, and particularly the RNA viruses. So what is the sort of process that is taking place with these emerging diseases? Essentially, we have the disease circulating in the wildlife, and then we have some exposure event taking place where it can spill over into the human population. Not many of you go kissing rodents. Not many of you have an intimate relationship with a truly wild and infected animal. And so one route this could actually come about is through a process such as vectors, where a biting fly or a tick bites the wildlife and then subsequently bites you, and that's how you will get Lyme Boreliosis. So perhaps exposure often is coming through these biting flies. Then we have some real biological hurdles. Then the parasite has to get inside you and it's got to replicate. Now, I'm glad to say I've got a lot of mucus, and that mucus really helps keep a lot of them away. I have an innate immune response and that helps me a lot. And then I have, and then the parasite finds it particularly difficult. So a virus has to get inside a cell, it has to find the right receptors to get in the cell, and if it, the receptors on the cell don't match the receptors on the virus, there's no lock and key so the virus can't get in. So there are a lot of problems once we get to that stage. Then, the whole problem of onward transmission. Not only do I have to be infected, but I have to produce infectious particles that has to infect somebody else, and so we can see the transmission process start on. There are problems with that. If, you get, if I had a very infectious, um, if I had Ebola, for example, I might be able to infect a few people, but we'd all die so fast that it probably wouldn't get into the population. So you can't be too virulent, otherwise you're going to burn yourself out. And if you're avirant, of course, you're not going to get any transmission. So there's a lot of very difficult processes to take place for this to actually occur. In fact, I can only think of two diseases 
that have successfully done all of these stages. One of those is HIV, and the other one is dengue. Dengue virus is transmitted by, um, uh, by uh, mosquitoes, and it was originally circulating in primates in the rainforest, and so it infected somebody. In the, and that with global warming and with the development and improved habitat for mosquitoes, so that started spreading. HIV is more interesting. There are, in fact, two forms of HIV. HIV-1, we know, is closely associated with SIV. And we know, or it would appear, our best guess, is it arose from the chimpanzees, this subspecies of chimpanzees, that lives in the middle of Africa. And what we suspect is that we've had a series of events, probably at least three spillover events, where infected chimpanzees were eaten by people, they became infected by HIV, and so we saw subsequent transmission. That transmission started in the very heart of Africa, and then we saw different forms arise, and they spread out from that one central location. Well, that's our best guess for what's actually happened for the origin of HIV. Interestingly, you might know there's HIV-2, which doesn't circle in the whole world. It's only found in Western Africa. That, came, that was originally found in Senegalese prostitutes. And through a similar sort of process, we were able to identify that that came from sooty mangabees, another form of primate. These are often kept domestically, they're often eaten. So, same sort of process, but a totally different virus. So, once this virus does get over into the human population, you know, once this, you can see how the guy out there eating his bushmeat becomes infected. But how on earth did it become established so much in the Western world? Well, we think you can actually blame one person, and that person is somebody called Gaetan Dugar, who we call patient zero in the HIV infection. He was a French-Canadian air flight attendant, and we think he infected as many as 248 Americans. He claimed to have 250 partners per annum, which I still find absolutely remarkable. <laughs> I always ask my students, what do you think he did on Sundays? <laughs> And, and he was infectious over a period of 10 years. Now, the very interesting component was not only was he infectious, but he was asymptomatic. He didn't show the illnesses. And many of the people he infected died well before he stopped his extraordinary sexual behavior. Now, the interesting thing about Gaetan Dugar is that he did not sit on the edge of any social network. He was indeed established at the very heart of the social network. He was connected to nine of the individuals in the original Los Angeles sexual network and linked to 40 of the original patients that died from AIDS. If he had sat here on the edge of the network with one or two partners, the likelihood of it taking off is very low. But because he sat at the very heart, because he was not only connected, but also heavily infected, he was the person who initiated and got that infection actually working and got it running in the American gay population. And then subsequently, you know the rest of the story. There have been other super spreaders as well. Probably the best known is Typhoid Mary. 
Mary Malone. She carried typhus. Once again, she was an asymptomatic carrier. And between 1900 and 1907, she alone initiated 200, sorry, 28 outbreaks of typhus. The reason she did this is because we know from some observations she didn't have, she was a cook. She used to enjoy making salads. And she didn't, how can we put it, didn't have very um, clean toilet habits. So she didn't, probably didn't wash her hands properly. And everywhere she went, people started getting ill. And so she would sneak away to somewhere else. Eventually, she ended up in Ithaca, where she infected 1,400 people. A very good reason not to go to Cornell University. <laughs> Here's another very famous super spreader, Esther Mock. Esther Mock, again, was a flight attendant. Watch out for these flight attendants. Esther Mock decided she would go shopping in Hong Kong one day with one of her colleagues. No doubt she got her flights free. And she lived in Singapore. When she came back, she was infected with SARS. She subsequently went on and infected, infected something like 25 people, including her priest, her mother, and her father, all of which subsequently died. And so the transmission process went on. But not only was there Esther Mock, but there was a series of other people who infected in the region of 20 to 40 individuals. 85% of the people didn't have any onward transmission at all. There was just this very low percentage of 3% of the people were responsible for 60% of the transmission <coughs> events. Just imagine if we could predict who the super spreaders were. If we could actually have said, Esther you're a super spreader type person. We don't know if she was just heavily connected like um, um, uh, Dugar. Maybe she, well, it would appear that she was also asymptomatic. She might have had a big circulation of friends, but I can't believe it was that much different from all these other people. So there are these special individuals called super spreaders. And some of my colleagues here at Penn State, myself included, but Jamie Lloyd-Smith and people working on this problem, trying to work out how we can predict who these people really are. So I'm trying to paint a picture to show you that diseases are still a threat. I'm still showing you uh, a series of examples where we've seen emerging diseases that are spilt over from wildlife. And then we see in diseases like SARS uh, good examples of things that are taking place at the current time. The SARS one, we believe, started when somebody ate a palm civet. And in China, palm civets are kept and then eaten and then taken to the market and, and uh, ingested. But in fact, some of my close colleagues have subsequently found that the SARS virus actually came from a bat. And we believe it went from the bat, and there were some bats kept near some of the palm civets in the market. Palm civets became infected, and so introduced into the human population, but it only got going because of the super spreaders. Nipah virus is another emerging virus. Bats get it. Fruit fo uh, flying foxes get it. They eat fruit. They then drop this fruit, and I had a great fortune of going to one of these colonies where this took place, and it is amazing. These bats are eating this fruit and just basically regurgitating big lumps of it. And it falls down underneath, and the locals keep their pigs, who then feed on the fruit that's underneath. They became infected, and then humans became infected. 
There was, in this instance, initially, no onward transmission. You got it, you suffered from it, you might die from it, but at least you didn't infect your family. More recently in Bangladesh, we've seen outbreaks where little boys have been climbing trees to eat the fruit that the bats have been chewing on, and we've seen human-to-human -human transmission taking place there. We all know the case, or you should all know the case, about Western Isle virus as well. Western Isle virus probably introduced into Western New York, probably from a mosquito that came off a plane, got established in the local bird population, infected horses, and has caused some human uh, infection, and in a remarkably short time, spread right across the United States. We won't get rid of this. This is here and here to stay. And I think this is a very important lesson, the introduction of a mosquito causing this sort of infection. Please go ahead. I have no idea unless it's full of horses. Could be because it's associated with large numbers of horses. It kills the crows. We have had birds die from it in State College. I can't remember if we had a human case in State College, but in Centre County we've definitely had uh, lots of cases in wildlife. I think the next invading disease in the... In, so I'll make, a, I'll make a gamble. If I was to say what is going to be the next emerging disease, I would say it's going to be something like Western Nile in the USA. I would guess it was going to be something like Rift Valley Fever. Gives you flu-like symptoms, it it's, gets into domestic animals, it, uh, it uh, causes wasting in those domestic animals, but I think that could well be, it could come in in exactly the same way as this has come in. And of course climate change has influenced it and helped shape that because we're getting better conditions and the mosquito populations are getting bigger. This isn't only happening with domestic animals. We've seen a whole series of big outbreaks in domestic animals. Did I say human? Yeah. I got it around the wrong way, didn't I? I meant to say we're not only seeing it in humans, it's happening in domestic animals and in wildlife as well. Once again, some of those are old diseases, such as the foot and mouth outbreak that occurred in 2001. And the modeling that Brian Grenfell and others who are now at Penn State did able, were able to stop this outbreak from going any further. Uh, I was heavily involved in some of the problems with bovine TB which is circulating in the badger population in the United Kingdom and it's causing real problems in the UK so they're not going to be able to export their cattle for the reason of bovine TB. We have problems with brucellosis in bison and elk out in Yellowstone National Park. The um, Brucellosis, the bison are blamed for having the brucellosis and then pa passing it to the local cattle. But in fact, um, I've been involved in some research there where it really looks as though it's the elk. Very interestingly, uh, so I was out in Montana doing some research with these guys, trying to get all the data and information together. And I said, how many cattle are we really talking about here? And they said, six, um, six herds. Okay, so... How many herds of cattle? How many cattle is that? And I can't remember. It wasn't a huge number. It's something like 450. And I said, okay, so how much is the government spending on this problem? I think they said $16 million a year. And I said, well, that's very interesting. Brucellosis is only transmitted between bison and elk or, and uh, cattle um, during the breeding season. This is highly seasonal. When you drop your, uh, when you drop your young, the, the brucellosis is actually in the afterbirth, and then a cow comes along and eats the afterbirth and becomes infected. So I said, I think it would be cheaper if the government took all the cattle in this part of Montana 
and put them on a cruise in the Caribbean just for those few weeks when transmission could occur and we would actually save a large amount of money and we needn't worry anymore about it. They thought I was flippant, but I was really actually being quite serious. Something that's really interesting, and a close co friend of mine works on this, is the recent outbreak of blue tongue in the United Kingdom. What's actually taken place here is blue tongue, I think it's a really interesting disease and I think there's a lot more we need to do on this. It's basically transmitted by two vectors and it basically has come out of Africa. And it started spreading up into, into uh, places like Greece and it spilt over into uh, Spain and parts of southern France. Uh, it also got into southern Italy as well. And it just sort of ticked over there for a period of time. And then Wumpf did this massive jump where it appeared in the Low Countries, Holland, Brussels, Luxembourg, and it circulated there for a while. What actually took place is it's using different vectors in the south. Once it got into the vectors in the north, which, which move over vast areas, it was able to spread much, much faster in this new vector. So it came right up to the channel, and then you may have heard on the news a couple of weeks ago there was an infection taking place in uh, some old cow got infected in southeast England and because of that the Brits are all up in arms so they're on the phone, what are we going to do about it? It's also in wildlife. One of my master's students who's just finishing has been looking to see what's happening with uh, northern and southern flying squirrels. Southern flying squirrels are moving north and as they're moving north, perhaps because of climate change, so they bring with them this parasitic worm called Strongyloides robustus. And she's shown that they get into the northern squirrels. The northern squirrels subsequently die, and so they're shrinking further north. So the southern squirrels have just about wiped out the northern flying squirrels in Pennsylvania in the last couple of years. You'd be very lucky to see one. And I think two weeks ago, the state listed it as some sort of special threatened species. Another thing that's actually taking place in wildlife at the moment is the spread of an infection in your house finches. If you look in your house finches on your bird table, you might see them with conjunctivitis. This is a disease that spread from the east, northeast coast, is spreading through the uh, well, house finch population, spreading westwards. Some of you may know about the prion disease, chronic wasting disease, which has been really in um, uh, farm deer, but is now spilling into uh, our own wild deer. We don't think we've got it here, but it's only a matter of time, this wasting disease a prion-like mad cow disease spills over. The mycoplasma that yeah. conjunctivitis, is that the same mycoplasma that infects people or is that a different mycoplasma? That's a really good question. So if you didn't hear the question, the question was, is that the mycoplasma that gets into people? Mycoplasma causes pneumonia. Generally speaking, they're very species-specific mycoplasma, so no it isn't. But mycoplasma does some very strange things and they're very fascinating, but it isn't the same one that gets into people. Interestingly, I'm also doing some work on desert tortoises in uh, Nevada and California where they've been, where the desert tortoise population we think has been wiped out and it's now a threatened species. And we think, and our work indicates that it's because of a mycoplasma infection. So, I've sort of given you an introduction to all the sort of emerging diseases. I wanted to finish off by saying two things. What are the sort of issues that we now face? And what's Penn State doing about it? Of course, our big scare is the one about biosecurity. 
when will H5N1 come? The answer is we don't know. And we don't know because we haven't got any data. If we haven't got any information, how on earth are we going to make a guess? So you might as well guess as much as we do. So we can make educated guesses, but because we don't, haven't really followed this before, we don't really know when H5N1 is going to come. But then we have issues about who are we going to vaccinate? Do we vaccinate the old and help save their life? If we've got a limited number of vaccines, if we kill all the chickens, we haven't got any eggs, so we can't produce any vaccines. So there are a whole series of issues about how we produce the vaccine. Who is it we vaccinate first? Do we stop it going through schools? Do we just close schools down? whole sort of policy process. And our modelling group, which is, I have to say, world leader here, is looking specifically at these closely with NIH and with uh, Department of Homeland Security. They're also looking at some of the agro-terrorism issues. It will be so easy for somebody to introduce foot to mouth or, or any disease into our agricultural base state. Just throw it out of the window and you could start it in a matter of little time at all. We know that foot and mouth circulating in the Mexican border and it's only a matter of time before it crosses. And we have these trans-frontier problems, trans-frontier problems we have to address. And uh, Mary Poss, who's a new person here, Penn State, been here for a couple of years, is looking specifically at these emerging disease issues and particularly the role that cats and mice play in moving uh, these uh, infectious diseases across frontiers. We have a real problem trying to predict when the next one is going to come. I defy anyone to actually say that SARS was going to emerge. Coronaviruses, which SARS, it has got a huge genome. It's very unlikely to have emerged. It's very unlikely to have jumped species the way it did and then get on with transmission. I don't think anybody really could have guessed that was going to happen. We have a whole series of disease and conservation issues. I've picked up a couple of those, such as the flying squirrels, the, the house finches. The much bigger problems are things at the moment where the gorillas are, are really being hammered by Ebola. They're being used a lot more for bushmeat, and so gorillas could well be wiped out. One of the viruses I work on is called rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus, which has wiped out the rabbits in, uh, in Spain. It's actually taken the, the Spanish link to the very edge of extinction. And it would be very surprising if that wasn't the first feline species to go extinct. Probably won't be the tiger. It will probably be the Spanish lynx because of the effects of disease on its food source. So there are major issues with disease and conservation. Then there are issues such as antibiotic resistance, resistance against antelmintics, and of course the influence of climate change. Trying to predict how diseases are going to move. Are we going to have malaria in state colleges? Dengue fever going to come here? If the vectors move up, could they bring it with them? Under what conditions are we going to have to start taking uh, drugs to stop getting infected with those sort of things? The approach we're taking at Penn State is bringing together different disciplines. We're sitting at the crossroads between ecology and molecular biology. We're trying to use ecological insights to inform epidemiology, and we're trying to use molecular biology to help us inform about immunology. We're trying to reach back into the physical scientists, particularly statistics, physics, maths, and computation. It's important that we do this. The approaches that those guys take, and some of them are here, are immensely important to being able to make these predictions in the future.
if we can do that, then we can start to reach forward into many of these issues. And issues that we're involved with in, here in Penn State, such as disease emergence, the role of wildlife, agricultural and foreign diseases, vector-borne diseases, controller diseases in the third world, HIV, epidemiology and PA. And I'm talking about faculty who come from at least half a dozen colleges at this university. I'm not just talking about the outstanding workers in science and agriculture, but beyond. We're trying to reach across scales. We're trying to do something that really scientists haven't done properly before, and we may be able to do it here, in that we need to go across scales, such as from 10 to the minus to 10 to the 6 meters. We need to understand what's happening at the genetic and the protein level, and able to understand how that influences virus assembly, how that interacts, how bacteria respond in your lung, how those two interact through vectors, through hosts, individual hosts, populations, communities, and eventually the pandemic level. If you think that's a load of waffle, then you only have to think for a minute about the whole H5N1 issue. All we need is a change in this protein, the hemagglutinin, which is the key that sticks on the outside of the virus, changes in the shape of that structure can influence the transmission of it and could influence the spread of H5N1 throughout the United States. Having said that, I personally still have reservations that we can move more than just a couple of scales. But we're trying, we're having a look at it. What worries me is the non-linearities in some of these processes might be so, such that we could never make predictions more than two scales. Since the head of physics is here, I'll have to ask him if, I'm, if that's wrong as well. But I do think that there's a process that, could be, that we could start looking at. And there's a group at Penn State who are trying to do this, link this protein to pandemic in, a, in an exciting way. We're not forgetting the main six infections. Six diseases cause 90% of the infectious disease deaths. Those are respiratory diseases, HIV, diarrheal diseases, TB, malaria, and measles. We're working on these respiratory diseases. We have one of the leading groups on whooping cough sitting here and how whooping cough in interacts with other lung diseases. You can just imagine if you have one lung disease, how that can influence your ability to be susceptible to a second lung disease. We have people who are working on HIV transmission and the epidemiology of that in Pennsylvania, in the poor communities here. We also have people working, we have a now have a new and extremely exciting group looking at malaria, taking completely novel views on the way we look at malaria. They're setting up one of the world leading laboratories here to look at processes that take place in the mosquitoes. They're looking at evolution of this parasite. And, um, I predict they're just going to do some really exciting stuff there. We also have, believe it or not, the world's leading group on measles here. If you want to know anything about measles, you have to come to Penn State. And these people are looking at the, particularly things they're working with um, uh, the uh, um, Médecins Sans Frontières group to work out how you apply vaccines in Niger, where it's a major cause of death in children. So. Our approach can be summed up by one of the last century's best-known philosophers who said we are students of problems and these cut right across the borders of disciplines. We're trying to take Karl Popper's approach and have a multidisciplinary approach.
But then another great philosopher also said, <laughs> act like you intend to get into the end zone. And of course, that's what we're trying to do there as well. I've spoken for slightly longer than I wanted to, but I do get carried away. So uh, please excuse me. Thank you. Right, questions. <laughs> Take this question and then that one. Yeah, there have been a lot of stuff in recent press by MRSA, maybe the worst than HIV, if you count the number 10, how you do the counting, how they do it. Uh, what's your sense of that? I really don't know. I really don't know. It's, it's an infection that I haven't spent any time looking at, so I'm, I, will be I would be unfair to respond to that. Sorry about that. Yes? Really good question. So the question, I'll repeat the question. What is it that limits infections in wild populations? That is actually my area of expertise. So I'm really quite happy to take you for dinner and we can talk for a few hours on, on that issue. Essentially, there are two processes. One of those seems to be associated with environmental limitation to some extent. And you often have this with the vector-borne diseases where environmental conditions limit your availability of vectors to bite you. So we can predict often the spread of vector-borne diseases by the number of vectors that actually bite you. Their distribution is determined by environmental conditions. There are a number of other, and the big worry there is that climate change is going to cause those to shift. Then there is a group of uh, pathogens which are, in, which are really regulated by the host's immune response and the way that host immune response acts such that changes in climate condition are not going to have any influence on the distribution of those diseases. And it really depends on the susceptibility of those hosts. But what is worrying is that our approach has often been that of a single species approach where we look at um, the dynamics of one disease or another one. And I've done that today. And yet, we know that in every individual, your susceptibility is determined not only by how healthy you are, but also by your, all your other secondary infections. So we should think of an individual as a community of parasitic infections that influence your susceptibility and your likelihood of becoming infected. If you have, obviously, if you have HIV, which is immunosuppressive, it's going to increase your likelihood of getting a second infection, as is tuberculosis. But less well known is the fact that if you have parasitic helminths, that will influence the circulation of HIV virus in your body. And it's relatively cheap, in fact. It's just a few, it's just a few cents, I think it's 20 cents, to treat somebody against a parasitic worm. And by doing that, we could reduce the impact of HIV quite dramatically. That would be different from giving the antiretroviral drugs, which of course is extremely expensive. Very worthwhile process, but it is a, a very expensive process. And that's part of what I'm trying to advocate, that we need a whole arsenal of approaches, not just a vaccine or antiretroviral drugs. But let's do something really quite original. Let's knock out the parasitic helminths, for example, in, southern, in Africa, and so have a big effect. I look forward to our dinner date. I'm just going to have to say. <laughs> I was wondering if you had any opinion on this resurrection of the 1914 flu pandemic virus that I just read they uh, introduced with the mice host. Just because we can do something, should we do it? Um, I think uh, a very interesting moral question. So um, basically they went and dug up, I think it was an Eskimo woman. They were able to extract the virus and put it back together and recreate the virus through a process called reverse genetics. 
So we have the viral, we have the genetic sequence that was the same as the 1918 uh, in, uh, flu epidemic. And then they put it into mice, and they've looked at the processes that influence. And it really is quite remarkable because it is so different from so many of the other flu viruses that have gone before or since, in that it's highly virulent and it and it really just causes a terrible mess. I mean, the scare is that somebody might get it and release it, but I think we need to know. I would tend to, I would definitely be on the side of saying, let's try and understand what's going on here. Let's try and understand that. Does this understanding allow us to identify what makes this parasite so virulent at times and cause so much damage? If we can know what that is, can we then look at what we have circulating at the moment and be able to say, well, we must stop it from doing this? And how do we stop it from doing that? So some, one of our groups here who works on influenza evolution, for example, has uh, found, has looked in a lot of detail, particularly the New York strains of the virus, and shown that you know, there is this thing where the virus goes from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere. They've looked at several hypotheses about why and how it could possibly move. And it is emerging out of the tropics somewhere, probably Southeast Asia. We've always suspected that, but it probably is emerging out of Southeast Asia and then spreading out. But what is the processes that would allow it to become as virulent as it, as it, as it does? So I think it's a really good question, and if you said you know, it's too dangerous to do that, I can see your point, but uh, I actually think I want to know. As a scientist, I do want to know. I'm particularly interested in, in mycoplasma. I don't remember as a child hearing anything about that. Maybe we just sneezed and thought we had a cold, as you know, yeah. the young adult population might. But um, if it, I'm in Huntington. Some years ago, if oh. the schools so hard that they closed the schools, oh, there was not enough of the antibiotic in the town, you know, at the time to even um, fill all the prescriptions. And um, you know, you can get it because there's there's nothing, no vaccine. I mean, you know, you yeah. can keep getting it. So you get it, you get yeah. over it, you get it. And and given some percentage of the population just thinks they have a cold. Yes. Um, what do we do about things like that? I, I think really interesting. There is this real problem we have about where these viruses go. Mm -hmm. Where do they? How do they persist? So we were just talking about the flu and how it goes from one part of the world to the next part of the world, but there are these viruses which appear to disappear. There's a persistent process we've got to try and understand, and mycoplasma is one of those. So interestingly, you know, I was vaccinated against whooping cough, and I don't think I'm ever going to get whooping cough. But my colleague, uh, Eric Harville, who works on this, has shown that in fact many of us carry these sort of persistent infections in our nasal passage and that you know there'll be one individual who then introduce that into a school and because the children are susceptible it will spread through the school of course we don't even know this person is just somebody who sniffs a little bit and coughs occasionally with an irritating cough so we're starting to learn more about it we're starting to learn how they can change the how they can actually hide in the system we know how some dna viruses like chickenpox of course hides because uh, you get chicken pox but then it can sit in your nervous system and then emerge as shingles for example at a later age so we know that some of the processes but there's still a lot more we need to know about this and try and from that try and understand the dynamics at the population level and you can see that's what I'm trying to do trying to understand these issues within a host and then take them up to the population level take them further 
I was wondering, most people think that in order to have uh, contact with a, a parasitic ailment, they have to go to some exotic place. Yes. But I was reading that there are quite a lot of these types of uh, organisms that are infecting us that we are infected with, say, in North America. Yep. Yeah, I, I'd like to show you the um, way that you're exposed to geohelminths. So there's something, there's a geohelminth called Ascaris that uh, circulates in tropical countries. If you look up images of it uh, on the web, you will be really shocked by, um, by what, it actually what it actually does. But it's actually transmitted by these things. These greenback things are passed between... Uh, carry the eggs of this uh, nematode and carry it around the world. And as our money circulates around the world, so it carries the parasitic agents. So many of you have been exposed to this really ghastly worm. It's about this size and it causes, I can go I can ruin your lunch quite easily. But the reason you don't get it, of course, is because you're relatively fit. You're able to throw that infection off. So we're exposed to things all the time, probably being exposed to some plant pathogen as I'm sitting here, but obviously I'm not going to be susceptible to it. So, and that comes back to my issue about parasites communities. Now that's fine, unless I was suffering from something else. If I was suffering from something else, then I might become vulnerable to it. So we're trying to understand that parasite community and how we do that. So, um, so in the group that we have here at Penn State, the paper I would point you at is one by Jamie Lloyd-Smith, which was in Nature a couple of years ago, where he took the statistical distribution and said, what is it we would expect to see? And then he fitted different models to it. And then he identified in a whole range of different diseases that there are some individuals that sit well outside that distribution, outside the 99% likelihood. So those individuals are the individuals that are statistically what we call super spreaders. Um, so statistically, we can predict them. And then, of course, there are people using social network uh, to sort of try and look at the consequences of those and how social networks can evolve. And the infectious disease group has just got this grant between the social network statisticians working together with infectious people to start looking at it. So I think in answer to that question, the answer is yes, really. And the second question? Uh, the other question was, uh, the HIV in the primates existed in, in the form that it was transmitted for a very long time. Was that uh, is that relatively recent? What actually made yep. the jump happen in, in recent good. times rather than a long time ago? Uh, very good question. Um, so HIV, when it's in in chimpanzees, is called SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus, and, and similar viruses are found in a whole series of wildlife. What we think takes place is that it's circulating in the wildlife and occasionally you see an exposure event take place where it spills over and then it would say, so I'm sure it's happened historically for a very long time. And it's just that it would have got into a local African village, would have infected a, 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 a group of people who may have suffered and died, but we never heard about it because it was some remote African village. And, you would and then it would die out, it would fade out, much as Ebola breaks out and fades out. I think there's an interesting question about whether there's some adaptation taking place, and every time it spills over, it changes its virulence, it changes itself over time, but that's a separate issue. But we suspect that it was spilling over continuously until it just so happened that there was an individual called Gaten Dugar who was the flight attendant on a flight that was in Africa, and he 
picked it up in West Africa, and he then, because he was asymptomatic, was able to initiate the worldwide spread of it. So I'm sure it's going on all the time, and we call that viral chatter when that's taking place. It's a sort of chatter between the two. A colleague of mine at John Hopkins has spent a lot of time in Africa looking and following the, uh, the people who eat bush meat and looking. And he found, a whole, he found a whole new community of retroviruses similar to SIV that's spilling over all the time and then either not getting going or just dying out again. So this is something that's probably taking place all the time. How did SIV I'll come back over to you. Yeah. SIV act in the um, It has no effect. Has no effect. What you get in the flu vaccine is uh, you get the opportunity for resistance against the endemic form. So there's a group of what I suspect are um, grey haired, uh, suit clad men who sit in DC. They bring together the biologists from about the world and they sit there and argue about what they think the next. Uh, flu e epidemic is going to be. And so they make a prediction and so they produce, they say this is the vaccine we should produce and they decide, they come out of the smoke-filled room and that's the decision made. They can't do that for H, they don't know what's going to happen to H5N1, so they're only doing it for the disease that they're expecting to turn up. They're not expect, they can't do it for the ones they're not expecting to turn up. So over the last couple of years, the vaccine they're using, I think this year is the same as the one they used last year because they don't see any major changes in the virus uh, in the southern hemisphere. And then I'll just go to the back first. There's a lot of disaster in your program TV nowadays, on the history channel, in which they talk about half or even up to 90% of all species destroyed on Earth, usually by some great astronomical events that launches a series of events lasting over hundreds of thousands of years. It would seem that a change in environment as a result of pandemics, yet they rarely mention uh, pandemics or infectious agents. I wonder if you have any examples of uh, ah. the pandemic that might have accompanied a uh, major catastrophe. Oh. Of course, there is the hypothesis that the um, dinosaurs are actually wiped out by uh, a pandemic of some sort. and. Uh, um, the evidence for that doesn't really add up. Otherwise, I would be the first person to say, hey, look at this. This can be important. I think there are a number of, uh, there are, of course, a number of possible scenarios that could influence that. And I think the key there is the contact rate. What is it that drives the contact rate between humans? So I find it quite interesting at the moment. Um, my daughter and I were sitting watching TV the other night and there was an advertisement came on about, uh, about how you're going to have to wear darkened glasses in the future, trying to get you to wear these glasses that change, you know, to protect your eyes and things. I suddenly realized one consequence of global warming is that people, if they do go outside less, and I certainly see, I'm sure that's the case in places in south, uh, southwest USA, then that might well increase their contact rate. And the faster people increase their contact rate, the likelihood of a, of a disease passing through would be increased. So things like Ebola fade out quite quickly, but maybe if contact rates were such and Ebola wasn't as, as virulent as it was, something like that could get going when you have direct contact rate. The other side, of course, is the vectors. We know that global climate change has caused a whole series of these vectors to move further north. We have dengue hemorrhagic fever in the US. 
in the southeast of the US and it could well spread northwards. We've seen a whole series of diseases coming with that. So there are things that could take place. Francesca. Well, Francesca's had her hand up. super spreaders in part are determined by where they sit in a network of contacts, and that's obviously maybe their main. Yeah. But are there main other things that make an individual a super spreader? Maybe they're uh, yeah, so I'd, I'd tell you a little bit more about HIV because HIV is spread by super spreaders and it's incredibly difficult to get reliable information on the sexual behavior of humans. If you take what the men say and what the women say, honestly it doesn't add up. You know, men are doing <laughs> twice what women are doing and you don't, and you just go, duh, <laughs> that doesn't add up. Mind you, much of our data actually comes from the student community, so that's, that's perhaps an explanation for that. But if, if you have these super spreaders, so individuals, Gate and Dugar, ridiculous number of uh, partners, then it can spread, start spreading off. But if like go with like, of course, then it will circulate within that sub-community and not really break out into the other community. And clearly, it's impossible for HIV unless you use drugs or other processes to, as a monogamous person to become infected by it. So while you expect it to spread through the whole population, it only actually spreads in, this is seen in Africa in places like Zimbabwe and Uganda, it spread very fast and reached a maximum, never reached the level we thought it was going to do and that's partly because of the way it's spread within that same community. But we do not know why um, you can have 10 parasites and look remarkably healthy, and I can have two parasites and I can be coughing and spluttering. I know that there might be slight differences in our immune system, but there seems to be something else beyond that we still don't really know about. There seems to be a tolerance. Some people can tolerate more parasites than others. We know that men aren't very good at tolerating parasites, and we know that's associated with, their, uh, with having testosterone, for example, because testosterone is immunosuppressive. And um, there's, there's a whole series of sort of things, but there's big areas, and particularly this area of tolerance is the one that uh, some of our faculty here, Andrew Reed and people, are starting to look at in more detail. Thank you. This isn't a question, but an observation. You are remarkably cheery. <laughs> 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 Do you know why? My daughter's just come back from New York, and I'm going to give her $200, and then I'm going to get on a flight to California. So. <laughs>